Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Со двора подъезд известный под названием Черный ход в том подъезде, как в поместье проживает Черный кот. Он в усы усмешку прячет темнота ему, как щи все коты поют и плачут. Hello everybody. Welcome to another edition of New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sean Gillery. In every podcast, my co-host Kevin Rothrock or I talk to an author about their new book on Russia or Eurasia. In this episode, I spoke with Douglas Smith about his book, Former People, The Final Days of the Russian Aristocracy. At the beginning of the 20th century, the Russian nobility numbered about 1.9 million people, or 1.5% of the population. The 1917 revolution and the Russian Civil War would all but obliterate this class, as many nobles were dispossessed, killed, or driven into exile. By 1921, Felix Dzerzhinsky, the head of the Chaka, could rightly boast, the landowners as a class have, bit, have disappeared, the bourgeoisie has been declassed, the political masters are now non-entities. Indeed, as the Civil War ebbed, no more than 50,000 former nobles, or 12% of its pre-revolutionary population, remained in Russia. It is the story of those former nobles who stayed in Soviet Russia that Douglas Smith's former people, the final days of the Russian aristocracy, seeks to tell. Through the trials and tribulations of two prominent noble families, the Sheremetyevs and the Golitsyns, Smith paints a general picture of how the former nobility experienced life and death under the Soviets. But that is not all. Former people is ultimately an incredibly readable, vivid, and emotional human story of survival, accommodation, and reconciliation. For more, here's my interview with Douglas Smith. Hi, Doug. Hi, how are you doing? Welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. Thanks for joining me to talk about your book, Former People, The Final Days of the Russian Aristocracy. Thanks for having me. All right, just to start off, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? Uh, what can I say? I'm basically working now full-time doing research and writing uh, Russian history topics. Um, I studied uh, languages in college at the University of Vermont. I did a, a double major in, in German and Russian, uh, and it was sort of studying languages there that got me um, interested in, in the history, both of, of the Germanic lands and then uh, Russia and the, the Soviet Union. I started going there to study in the early 1980s, um, studying language. Uh, I worked for the um, U.S. State Department on one of their traveling cultural exchange exhibitions in the 1980s, which was a fabulous experience to travel around the Soviet Union during uh, the Gorbachev era. I uh, did some teaching internationally, and then I went to graduate school uh, in Russian history at, at UCLA. Oh, really? Where, yeah. So I studied with – I was proud, proud to say that I was the last Ph.D. student of Hans Rager. Oh, was, wow. Okay. Yes. An institution there, incredible man to study under. Sadly, he's 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 dead now, but he was a fabulous person to work with. And UCLA was just one of the most amazing departments in the 1980s, 1990s. Uh, I live in Seattle now. Um, uh, I taught for a little while at Seattle University, but for uh, over over ten years now, probably I've just been focusing on on, on writing on Russia. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad uh, we have that UCLA connection. Now, you went there as well. Yeah, I got my PhD there. Oh, well, that's two fine uh, graduates of the same institution. Yes, yes, very much so. <laughs> Who was your advisor? I study under Arch Getty. Oh, sure, I know Arch, yes, mm-hmm. of course. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, how did you come to write this book? And, and in particular, why do you think it's important to tell the story about the fate of the Russian nobility after 1917? Well, I, you know, I, was, uh, I came to it through the 18th century, which may sound a bit strange, um, all the, I wrote three books on the 18th century before, uh, Working the Rough Stone, which is on Freemasonry in Russia. Uh, then I did it in an edited uh, translation of the letters between Catherine the Great and Prince Potemkin called Love and Conquest. And then I wrote a book uh, that was a huge undertaking um, called The Pearl, 
which was the story of uh, forbidden love between Count Nikolai Sheremetyev, uh, one of the great grandees and aristocrats of the 18th century, and his serf, Praskovia Kavalyova, who was also the star of his private surf opera company. And amazing story. Anyway, it took me years to do. It was a fabulous uh, thing to research. Um, and when I was working on that, I wanted to, uh, to sort of track down the descendants of, of Count Sheremetyev. And I ended up um, getting to know um, Nikita Sheremetyev, who was then living, this is about 10 years or so ago, was living in um, Connecticut. Wonderful man. His family fled after the revolution. And I'll never forget, I was there for dinner with him and his wife, and they had various Russian artifacts and objects on the walls of their home. And, and I remember asking Nikita, I said, so how did your family get, get all this stuff out during the, you know, the tumultuous time of the revolution? And uh, he said to Douglas, we, you know, none of this we got, came from our family. We, we bought these things in stores you know, in Paris and places like that after the revolution. And then he paused and he held up something that looked sort of like a, a silver pate knife or fork. I forget exactly right now. And I uh, sort of had a little smile on his face. He said, Douglas, this is all the remains of the Sheremetyev fortune. Wow. You know, kind of a little joke. And, I, and it just lodged in my brain. And I started thinking, what would that be like to have been in a family like the Sheremetyevs, who for centuries were incredibly powerful and, and wealthy, and, and then basically overnight the revolution comes and you lose everything, you're in danger for your life. Um, I think it's a reversal of fortune that no one can even begin to imagine. So that sort of got me thinking about this subject. And then I started to dig around and, you know, checking online and libraries and things. And I couldn't really find much on it. Um, I found books, obviously, on the, the emigres, the white Russian emigres in Paris and Berlin and what have you. But that's sort of a different story. So I remember I was in uh, Moscow 2006 at the then, might have still been the Lenin Library. Maybe it was already the Russian State Library going through their card catalog, which was still wasn't really online. And they had like every possible topic on, on the revolution, but there was nothing on the revolution and the nobility. So I remember going to a librarian there and saying, you know, excuse me, but clearly the, 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 the cards on the revolution and the nobility must have been removed from the card catalog. <laughs> she looked at me like I was a complete fool uh, and said, well, of course not. There's, you know, the nobility had nothing to do with the revolution. Um, and I remember thinking, Oh, I think I'm onto something here. So I, I just kind of got into it from that direction. And, you know, I think, I think scholars in the West have also sort of not taken a, a real look at this subject. Uh, I think there's been, a, a, on some level, a certain sense that um, these people got what was coming to them, that uh, their fate is, is uh, something we can easily understand, for historical reasons, and and it is not central to the story of, of the revolution, not central to the, the story of what happened to Russia in the 20th century. And I, I think that's mistaken. I think it's very mistaken. Um, I think, you know, the, this book is important, I think, on a couple levels. First of all, I think it really is one of the last great untold stories of the Russian Revolution, because so much of the revolution was about destroying the old order. It was a, It was a revulsion against the old order as much as it was or even more so about building a new order, especially in the early years. And what was a better representative of the old order than, than the nobility? So I think it's a huge part of the story that hasn't really been looked at. I think a second reason is it's, it's undoubtedly a tragedy for, for Russia. Um, despite, you know, serfdom, which I talk about in the book, which supported the nobility and which was very much an underlying, underlying ultimate historical cause of the revolutionary violence, you know, so much of what we think about as, as, as quintessentially Russian was created by the nobility, whether it's, it's the, the, the poetry of Pushkin, the stories of Turgenev, the novels of Tolstoy, the music of Rachmaninoff, uh, Bunin, Nabokov. Um, you know, this, these were all members of the nobility. Um, we think of the great uh, philosophers, uh, revolutionary philosophers, from Kropotkin to Bakunin to Lenin himself. Uh, these were these were uh, members of the nobility. So, so much of what we think about as Russian culture was created by this class, by this educated class. And they were, they were cut off. They were, they were destroyed. And that is definitely a tragedy. And finally, I think by looking at what happened to the nobility, um, we gain a greater understanding about the very nature of the Soviet system, which, in my opinion, required enemies to survive. The only way it seemed to be able to move forward in any way was through scapegoating certain groups. First, the nobility 
Um, and then later other groups, whether it be intellectuals, even the peasants or, or at times workers, there was this need for enemies. And so by looking at the way the nobility, the first group of enemies that they went after uh, were treated, you gain, I think, a greater appreciation for the for the nature and the logic and the mentality that underlay the Soviet system. In a, in a way, the, the, the phenomenon of the class enemy, which erupts really early on in 1917 after the revolution, never gets shooken from, from the system that develops out of it. Well, that's the way, that's my reading of it. And um, I think what's fascinating about it is, you know, it, the need for, or, or, or the sense of there being enemies and class enemies, you know, it's, I don't argue in the book that this is a creation of Lenin and the Bolsheviks, far from it. This is, you know, historical patterns that were laid down over centuries but what's so fascinating is then how you get these older historical traditions feeding this violence and this and this um, um, you know way of viewing outsiders and others and the way then Lenin and the Bolsheviks use this and feed this and pour gasoline on the fire, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's just leading to this you know huge conflagration. Well, your your book revolves around two very high aristocratic families, the Sheremetevas and the Golitsyns. Um, talk a bit about each family and the important role they play in your story. Well, you know, when I started to think about this, I was trying to figure out how do I tell the story of, a, of an entire class? It's almost 2 million people uh, around 1900 who uh, belong to the nobility. It's a huge group of people. Um, so how do you, you know, talk about the fate of a class in a way that is, it is meaningful to a reader um, in a way that you can um, make these experiences intelligible. So I, I sort of early on decided that while I will talk about the larger social uh, ramifications of this history, I need to, to, to bring it down to the, the level of individual lives. Otherwise it will, it will be sort of lost on the reader and it, and it, and it won't, it won't interest people and move them and ultimately won't educate them. So I started figuring out, okay, well, thinking about, okay, who am I going to write about? Which families are, am I going to write about? And that took me some time of, of researching both in printed sources and also digging around in the archives and meeting the descendants of various noble families. Um, I talked to dozens of people, um, and it was only slowly that I, 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 I came upon um, the Sherimetivs and, and, and Galitsyns, and not even all the Galitsyns, but just one branch of the Galitsyns, since it's such a big family. Um, to focus on. And what led me to them um, chiefly was the richness of sources for these people. Um, they left behind a great number of, of, of letters, of diaries, of memoirs, photographs, some in their own private collections, much of it in uh, Russian archives now. Um, and uh, the fact that their, their families uh, overlap and crisscross at various points made it interesting. And also the differences between the families made it a way of, of bringing out some of the um, diversity of, of the nobility uh, and what have you. So I think, you know, every person must have experienced these, these events um, differently on some level. But I think by looking at these two families, you get a general sense of, of the, the typical forces that were affecting them and the types of experiences that they had. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite extraordinary, actually. One of the things that does come out quite clearly is how diverse within the families they are, um, particularly the Galitsyns. You get a lot of variation uh, in terms of how they felt about the events kind of swirling around them. Yeah, I think, I think that's a good point. And that was one of the things that, um, that I didn't fully appreciate when I went into studying this uh, topic. And I think even fellow Russian historians maybe don't um, necessarily realize is the diversity within the nobility at sense, the, the ideological diversity uh, within it. Um, uh, you know, on one hand, you have like, say, um, the elder Count uh, Sheremetyev, Sergei Dmitrievich Sheremetyev, born in the 1840s and dies in 1918, who uh, was very much sort of a retrograde, anti-Semite, um, reactionary, strong supporter of Alexander III, um, any, you know, whiff of, 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 uh, progressive change, he, he, you know, couldn't, uh, countenance. And then on the other hand, you have someone like, um, Prince Vladimir Mikhailovich Galitsyn, born right around the same time, um, who was very much a progressive liberal, wanted a constitutional order, 
uh, served as the mayor of Moscow for three terms, was extremely popular there, um, was kicked out of office uh, from an earlier position um, uh, by the uh, by the government because he was too liberal, um, and very much saw the revolution as as historical payback for what the nobility had done to to Russia, had done to the peasant class, chiefly through through serfdom and. And was interesting in that he was, even in the midst of the repression and bloodshed the family was suffering during the revolution, never once does he whine and complain why. He's always saying, this is the ultimate, uh, you know, retribution. We, if we have no one but ourselves to blame for this. It's really quite amazing how perceptive and open-minded and fair someone like him could be in, the, in that situation. Yeah, I want to come back to that idea of um, we deserve to some extent, what we're getting, because uh, I think that's another theme that kind of runs, surprisingly, runs throughout. But uh, let's pause on that for a bit. The last 15 years of the old regime is often referred to as the times of trouble. I mean, the last interview I did with um, Mark Steinberg was focused on this. Um, how did the Sheremetyevs and Golitsyns understand and experience these years of turmoil? That's uh, good. Again, I think... You know, there was a, a diverse uh, reaction to, to what was happening in the country. I think for someone like the elder Count Sheremetyev, uh, Sergei uh, Dmitrich, you know, there was this unwillingness to, to recognize that there was change afoot um, in the society and uh, a lack of any support for um, government attempts to um, meet this change. He was um, very much against... Um, you know, the, the, the changes following the revolution of, of, of 1905, he felt, uh, uh, Nikolai II, Nicholas II was a weakling, too timid, uh, afraid to lead and lead with an, uh, you know, proverbial iron fist like his father had been and felt that, that the changes that were rocking society, um, were not some sort of internal, um, growth and a sign of, of, you know, larger, societal transformations, but simply uh, the, what you get when you have a weak czar on the throne. So there's that extreme on one hand. Um, uh, his One of his sons, on the other hand, um, the only son who would stay in Russia, um, Count Pavel Sheremetyev, was very much um, conflicted by what he saw. He was very uh, much involved in the Zemstva movement. Uh, he believed in the need to devolve power down to the local level, um, the, the need to listen to society and to give society a greater uh, voice, while at the same time he was a monarchist. He did not believe in adopting Western parliamentary constitutional forms to Russia, that you could somehow, you could somehow reform the system from, from within, maintain the monarchy, while at the same time giving a greater voice to society and that society... Uh, needed this, that um, they were heading in a situation in which the distrust of the government and the state towards society was as great as the distrust of society towards the state and towards government. And there was a need to solve this tension. And he was very anguished by this. Um, and then on the other hand, you have some of the Galitsyns, as I said, who were very much in the liberal westernizer uh, camp, um, wanted uh, the introduction of, of um, a constitutional uh, order and worked for it. The son of the mayor, um, Prince Mikhail Galitsyn, was also very active in the Zemstva movement, for a while worked together with Pavel Sheremetyev, um, and he uh, ran afoul of the, the, um, the state authorities. Uh, he and his wife, Anna, would often hold salons, and um, political gatherings at their home in, uh, in the manor out in the country. Um, and they were put under police surveillance um, and uh, were monitored as, as, as subversives. So it's, it's very interesting. They reacted to these changes differently. Um, again, after the revolution of 1905, for some there is this so-called you know, reaction and a move back into the embrace of a strong state against the dangers of uh, another Pugachovshina. But not for all of them. Again, it's, it's, it remains, I think, a complicated uh, story. Yeah, I mean, you can see it's interesting that, that it really kind of speaks to the crisis of the regime, that the elite itself is splitting and fracturing on where, what direction the country should go in to address its, you know, basically modernization. Um, now, 
In your chapter about the February Revolution, you have a really interesting passage. Um, you write, revolutions produce counter-revolutions. Yet it is one of the remarkable things about the February Revolution that it produced no counter-revolution seeking to restore the Romanovs. The nobility, and indeed the entire Russian elite, exactly those who stood to lose the most with the fall of Tsarism, either embraced the revolution or at least begrudgingly accepted it. Despite a few isolated voices, there were no calls for a return to the past. How do you explain this? Not so much having one's peace with the revolution, but really not calling for a return to the past. As I understand it from the, from the sources I looked at, literally everyone, almost to a, a man and woman, saw the, the, um, the czarist system as it existed by 1914, 15, 16, whatever, as, as basically morally bankrupt uh, and rotten to the core and not able, you know, you mentioned modernization, not able, uh, not equipped to handle the needs of a modernizing Russia. And, and much of it, I think, um, hinges on, on, on personality. And I know a lot of uh, historians don't want to put too much emphasis on personal actors, but, you know, I think, I think the Russian revolution is one of those moments where personalities really do, I think, make a difference. Had it been someone other than Nicholas II, or had he been a slightly different person, things might have developed somewhat differently. But he, he found a way to, to push away exactly that class of people that he needed for, for support uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, when you get somebody like Count Sergei Sheremetyev, who was a committed monarchist, who believed that monarchy um, and absolutism was the only uh, system for Russia. When someone like that is disgusted with, with um, the czar and disgusted with the system uh, that he personifies, you know that, that, that um, the monarchy can't last. And so that's what's interesting is it's only, you know, we want it, we, we, I think from the perspective of, of years later, we think, oh, well, there was the revolution and then, and then the nobility sort of rallied around restoring the monarchy. And it didn't, it, it doesn't happen that way. It's, you know, it's later after the Bolsheviks come to power um, that you do then get some members of the nobility talking about the return of, of Nicholas, the return of, of the Romanovs and the monarchy, but not after the February revolution. It's, uh, plus, they were very much preoccupied with trying to continue the war against Germany and Austria. Now, by summer 1917, there's a full-blown social revolution underway, especially in the countryside, and you deal with this quite well. How does the nobility contend with peasants' class hatred toward them? Yeah, that's a that's an interesting question. Um, you know, they do. There are some attempts, and I talk about them in the book, as you know. There are some attempts uh, for the you know the landowning class to sort of organize themselves and um, address the the mounting chaos that's that's sweeping the countryside. But the, it's it's very much too little, too late. I think that's sort of the sense that I get from reading the sources. Um, and, and again, given the diversity of, of land ownership and, um, and the, the state of the, the Russian, vast Russian countryside, it's, it's difficult for them to, to organize at all. So I think that you're very much, it's sort of, it seems to be sort of individuals trying whatever they can do in their local environment to handle the situation. And then, you know, the, what you also see is repeated attempts um, of landowners to tell the peasants, let's wait for the constituent assembly, which will address the land question. And obviously that is not the answer they want. And that is not the answer that is going to stem the tide against uh, the landowners in the countryside. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I think in terms of the revolution, this is, it's been dealt with a little bit, but I don't, not enough to my satisfaction, the real, the revolution going on outside of the cities, which is just, you know, the levels of violence. And one of the things you do bring out that's quite well, I have to compliment you on is the levels of the violence in February, March, in March and April, 1917, that's taking place. Just the chaos that occurs after the regime um, implodes. Uh, you, you always, you, as you say, you have this, there's this idea that February was kind of a bloodless period. 
Yeah, and obviously I'm not the first one that uh, destroys the myth or tries to destroy the myth that February was was bloodless. Obviously, many people have have talked about this before, but it was interesting. You know, one of the things I did was I tried to read as widely as I could in the newspapers um, from those early months of 1917 that were full of reports of of horrifying uh, things going on in the countryside, and then also. Um, in the uh, the Sheremetyev uh, Fondi collections in in the archives in Moscow and Petersburg, where these estate managers are writing back to the, the central family office, you know, with with tales of horror, you know, and the biggest fear is that once you know the the weather improves and they get through the muddy spring season, uh, and peasants can really start moving, that you know the fire is going to be lit and no one is is going to be able to put it out, and it's you know the level of I think it's. I was really struck again by just the level of of hatred, the level of of, of violence there. I think I, I talk about it. I think in the beginning of the book, one of the passages that really moved me, the story and uh, the particular family escapes me, but they had an estate in, in Ukraine, and uh, it was contested over by the, the you know the local peasants and the owners, and finally the owners leave and the peasants descend on the estate, and they literally just they don't just you know, rob it. They just rip it to the ground. They just want it gone. And two or I think two of the um, former stewards try to stop the the mob and they're seized. Um, And they don't just kill them. They behead them. Oh, right. Yeah. They don't just behead them. They take the heads and they feed them to dogs. I mean, it's just the level of violence is just, you know, it takes your breath away. Yeah, I remember that passage also. <laughs> you don't you don't forget something like that. No, no, no. When they feed the, the person's head to a dog, you, you don't you don't forget that. And that and that actually the level of violence leads into my next question. Um and that is the period of nineteen eighteen and nineteen twenty one, the period of the Civil War, spans six chapters in your book and, and suggesting that the Russian Civil War was a formative period in the lives of the former nobility. Um, talk about their life during war, this war, and and what should we take away from their experience? Well, I mean, obviously, as as with all Russians uh, during those years, they you know they suffered horribly. No one, no one, <laughs> probably escaped uh, completely unscathed the the violence of of those years. I think you know one of the things that was interesting to me. Um, this is maybe backpedaling a little bit on your question was, you know, my assumption was the nobles left Russia and made up their mind to leave Russia because not long after the revolution, they were like, okay, this is bad. This is going to, you know, we won't get out of this one alive. We have to go make for Western Europe or what have you. But what was fascinating for me was, was realizing through my research that that was not at all the case, that these people were, for the most part, extremely patriotic and did not want to leave Russia. So what they would do, though, would may, if they could, was to leave Moscow, to leave Petrograd, and go to more of the fringes of the empire where they thought they would be would be safer. Um, and and then how they get engulfed in the fighting of the civil war, and how, despite usually their best efforts to remain in Russia, they ultimately are left with with a very simple and stark choice: either they abandon the country or they'll be killed. Um, and even when they abandon the country, most of them seem to think it's only temporary and, and we will get back. Um, I, in the stories that I recount in there, um, again, they're incredibly moving. They're incredibly dramatic. Um, I think one of the things researching the book that I thought was particularly fascinating is what is going on in the northern Caucasus in these uh, spa towns like Kislovodsk and Pitigorsk, uh, Yesentuki, how, you know, Day after day, you know, you have whites and reds and partisans, um, Cossacks crossing over the same territory and these nobles sort of being swept over by these various groups, never sure who they can trust, people being um, taken out and killed and and disguising themselves as peasants and trying to escape into the mountains. You have that side. Then you have uh, the story of of, uh, Dr. Alexander Galitsyn, who with his family leaves Moscow after the Bolshevik coup for what they think will be a quieter life in Siberia and how then they get engulfed uh, in the war and end up living in boxcars and uh, eventually making their way all the way across Siberia uh, and eventually to Kharbin. 
and then by the early 1920s, all the way actually to Seattle and then on, on to California. Um, so there's, a, there's, you know, a multitude of different, uh, different stories. Um, but I think it's, it is, it's sort of a crucible, this, this, this period. It, um, it, it forces them to, to rely on certain skills and talents that many of them didn't even know they had to survive. Um, which is probably true again for all of Russia, from scrounging for food to um, learning how to make um, purses, shoes, and wallets out of old carpets and curtains uh, to barter for food at the market, and all that kind of thing. I think they they start to realize that actually, you know, we can we can do more maybe than we than we even realized. Um, but what's interesting is it doesn't it doesn't ultimately crush them because they come out of it, those who survive. And uh, I think of the, the 2 million before the revolution, there may have been only 50,000 or so left by the end of the civil war. They come out of it. Those who do survive with the sense of, of, of their own, uh, I don't know, skills, their own talents and, and a desire to, uh, to, um, to try to rebuild their lives on, on some level as, as much as they can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this actually sets up, nicely my next question, which is another passage I was struck by um, were the words of a former countess relayed by the American journalist Edwin Hullinger. She tells him, yes, many of us can see that the revolution was for the best. It made us into living, real people. Many were only existing before. We have gained confidence in ourselves because we know we can do things. I like it better. I would not go back to the old. Um, in what way do these words kind of set the tone for the lives of the former nobility after revolution in the 1920s in particular? Yeah, that's, I, I remember coming across that quote and you know, it's, I wondered it's in the book and I think it does capture something about how, um, members of the former nobility felt. I wonder too, uh, you know, if the, if the journalist, embellished it or maybe rephrased it somewhat to his own, his own political ends. Um, but I think it does, uh, it does capture something about the, the, the spirit of those who, who came out the other side of the, of the horrible violence, uh, of the civil war. There was, there was a sense that, you know, yes, we can do things and yes, we can build a better life. Even, even the uh, the elder Prince Galitsyn, the who I call the mayor in the book, because there's so many people with the same name, I call him the mayor. But who was was an old man by the by the end of the uh, the Civil War? He'd been born in the 1840s, uh, and um, even he was like, you know, we all have to work now, and there's nothing wrong with that. We all have talents and skills, and it doesn't hurt that we that we uh, put them put them to use. And, and find a purpose for our lives through work. So I think that was, I mean, on one hand, they didn't have much choice, right? Nobody had a choice. Everybody had to work. But I think many of them um, embraced that. Um, and it was also, I think, there was definitely a sense, and this was not just uh, members of the, of the nobility, but I think a wider um, social um, phenomenon at the time, that after the nightmare of the revolution, the Civil War, and you can even include World War I before that, um, by the early 1920s, um, people were, especially younger people, they were ready to have fun. They were, they were ready to, to um, you know, dwell. One, one of the characters I, I refer to in the book um, says something to the effect of, um, I've, I've been in the depths of life. I now want to be on the surface of life. And, you know, this is where you have foxtrot parties and um, dances and cafe life and um, uh, taking delight and pleasure in a new pair of shoes or a nice dress, um, going out and that sort of thing. So I think there was definitely a sense of it's time, it's time to, to have some fun. And the, the young members of the nobility embraced this fully. They were definitely ready um, to, to enjoy themselves once again. Despite being dispossessed, and, and really the, the rest of the book until really the terror is a tale of survival for the most part. So I, I think this is another important theme in the text. But And despite being dispossessed and disenfranchised, and of course living in fear of imminent arrest, I mean, they, despite the kind of class tolerance of the 20s, they're still, you know, being hounded by the police. Um, nevertheless, as you, as you suggest, you know, former nobles were able to eke out a life. And one of the things I found interesting is that the way they maintained some semblance of a life was by appealing to party notables. 
Um, talk about the role that these connections played in, in former nobles' lives, connections with high party officials, and how did they use them? Right. Well, this was, you know, again, I think this is a, a really interesting aspect of the story um, and something I had not expected when I set out to do the research and something that I really tried to draw out because I think, again, it, it, it shows the complexity of life uh, in Russia and it shows that you can't um, understand this, this history with simple black and white, with simple always oh, good and evil. Uh, it's much more complex. And that is, again, there were these, what they called, you know, uh, tame communists, Ruchnoi Kommunist, these, these high, high party officials um, who were willing to help um, uh, members of these prominent families. And um, repeatedly, I, you know, I, I talk about instances where somebody would be arrested, uh, someone would be exiled, and a member of their family would go to, you know, Kalinin or Kamenev, um, Smidovich, um, and others, and beg for intercession and, and beg for help. And the degree to which, um, you know, they really did act on this, that these, these high party officials would do what they could uh, in almost every instance to, to lessen the punishment or, or get people freed. Um, and some of these were, you know, uh, people that uh, these families had known before the revolution. So there's a couple instances where, for example, uh, there was, and again, I, I apologize for not remembering every name off the top of my head, but, you know, there was one family where they'd had a tutor before the revolution uh, and they had treated the tutor very well. I think it was, this was part of the Galitsyns. Well, this tutor's brother became a powerful communist official after the revolution, but he remembered his brother speaking kindly about this aristocratic family. So he was, uh, you know, willing to help them. Um, in, um, I think it was in 1918 when members of the Sheremetyevs were arrested at their home and the elder Countess Sheremetyev, uh, Yekaterina Sheremetyev, went uh, to see Kamenev and he immediately showed her into his office. Uh, she got to cut to the front of the line and had her sit down and, and pledged to do whatever he could to help uh, free her son and, and, and several others. Uh, and most of them were freed. Her two sons-in-law unfortunately, were not freed and they were, were executed. Um, but there was always this sort of dance going on of, 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 on one hand, being afraid of the communists, being afraid of the, the party, yet at the other hand, on the other hand, um, you know, trying to maintain connections to some of them because you never know when you're going to need that help. And this runs throughout uh, the 20s and even the 30s. Yeah, th this goes to what you were saying about the importance of individuals and individual personal relationships and connections, which are a major feature of um, Russian political life uh, throughout the communist period, regardless of, of what happened. Um, personal connections are, are incredibly important. And it's, it's interesting to see how a people that have been so demonized, so dispossessed, are still able to, um, in, in many instances, utilize them to their benefit, to, to survive, I should say, uh, is quite interesting. Yeah. And I think it's interesting too, is I think, you know, it, it was like two sides of a coin on one sense, when you think about the way that the, the nobility was demonized, um, by the communists, there was, I think even for some of the communists, there was this, uh, public demonization. And I, I sometimes wonder though, if on, on a deeper, more private level for some of these communist officials, there was still a bit of fascination with the old aristocracy. And, you know, I think some of them were even drew some sort of satisfaction out of, uh, of, of accepting into their office, you know, a former prince or a former countess, someone who once had great power and, and status. Some of that pleasure, of course, derived from the fact that these formerly wealthy, powerful people were coming to them for help. Uh, but also just the fact that they were moving in certain elite circles, if you will. Mm -hmm. And and I wonder how that really played out in their minds in the 1930s when the communist elite is, you know, spending vacation in former uh, noble uh, mansions and palaces, um, even using some of them at one point, you point out, as tutors to teach them the refinements of being kind of an elite uh, teaching them French or ch their children French. It's this interesting in the, in the mid 1930s, you kind of allude to this mixing 
of 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 lifestyles of the former elite, the former ways mixed in with the new communist elite that I find really interesting too. Yeah, exactly, because they they want uh, in in a, in a revised form, of course, they want some sort of sense of of polish, right, for their for themselves and for their children, and so they look to these. Um, Surviving members of the old elite, as you say, to teach the their you know their children French and and things like that. Now the the fate of the former nobility takes a, a quite a dramatic turn for the worst, uh, beginning in 1928. Um, what was the fate of some of these people uh, during Stalin's revolution from above? Well, it's you know it, backpedaling a little bit. It was interesting when I first started a to work on the book, you know, as a historian, one of the things you immediately start to think about are what are the, uh, what's the frame that's going to be around this project, around this book? What are the, the beginning years and what are the end years? And I really thought that, oh, okay, well, you know, start in the early 20th century and basically by the end of 1918, it's probably the story is over, you know, and then the more I researched, I realized, oh no, it, it goes on through the civil war. And I thought, but then clearly the, the problem of former people, the problem of the nobility must be over. And then the more I read, I say, no, it, it lasts throughout the 1920s. And I thought, okay, but clearly by then the subject will have faded. Uh, and then, you know, you realize, no, that when you get Stalin's revolution of uh, the late 1920s, um, class warfare and preoccupation with the old elites um, is reignited and, and ratcheted up to a whole new a whole new level. So th- that's one of the reasons the book goes all the way from 1900 up until um, the Nazi invasion in uh, 1941. But it's 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 you know it's terrifying when you when you begin to read uh, about the fates of some of these individuals uh, during Stalin's revolution from from above. Um, the degree to which. Uh, um, the few remaining members uh, of this class are subjected to, to all manners of state violence and, and, and terror. Um, and I recount, um, you know, numerous stories of people who are first in the late 1920s, they are um, disenfranchised, you know, become licenci and lose all whatever semblance of legal protection and access to uh, food and, and work and housing and, and medical care, whatever, um, are kicked out of Moscow or exiled. And then as the 30s progressed, you know, are, are caught up in the, in the great terror. I think one of the fascinating chapters of, of this period under Stalin is what was known as Operation Former People, which took place in Leningrad in, in 1935, um, which I write about and others have, have written about, but I think I give a, a bit fuller uh, discussion of it. Um, and the degree to which, um, and you know this well, others who study this period um, know it, is, is the, is, is also the randomness of so much of this violence that, you know, there are certain people that it seems to be simply, they were in the wrong town at the wrong time. Uh, and they get pulled in. Uh, you know, I, I talk a bit about what happens to people in Tomsk. There's quite a few Galitsyns and then Rusev and others that are in Tomsk and they all get rounded up and they, and they get shot. Um, yet someone like, um, Prince Vladimir Galitsyn, um, who, uh, is the grandson of the mayor, was repeatedly arrested in the 1920s um, and uh, becomes a Lishenets with the rest of the family in 1928. They're forced out of Moscow and move eventually to Dmitrov in the north. Um, and it's strange, but, the, the, you know, he gets uh, his hand slapped a few times during the Great Terror, but he's left untouched. And for reasons I can never fully understand, only to then be arrested uh, in 1941 sent to a camp where he dies of Pellagra uh, in 1943. So it's, it's, again, it's interesting how these, these waves of violence, these waves of state repression against, against these, um, these people sort of ebb and flow beginning with 1917 all the way up to 1941. Yeah, I always thought that would be an interesting project to not focus on who was shot, but who should have been shot or arrested and sent to Gulag and weren't. Um, and and we're able to survive this wave of thirty seven thirty eight um, with maybe slaps on the wrist and even in some cases untouched and and why what were the the particular circumstances of how they were able to evade what you know in all intents and purposes should have been their certain death well yeah and I don't have an answer to that and I think there's again it speaks to the randomness uh, of the violence I mean one of them that I still will never understand was. Um, Pavel Sheremetyev, Count Pavel Sheremetyev, who I mentioned earlier, born in the 1870s, 
um, a monarchist, um, conflicted monarchist, I call him, uh, under the old regime. Um, and uh, he survives uh, up until 1943 when he basically starves to death with uh, living with his family outside Moscow during World War II. Um, and he had been imprisoned in 1918. He had been called in for questioning on various occasions. But he was the only surviving male member of the Count Sheremetyev who stayed in Russia, in the Soviet Union. And he was, he, he went through the, the Great Terror and, and was not repressed. I find, I can't find any explanation for that. Yeah, and I would imagine that you probably never could. Because, as you said, and I think this is what people need to understand about the terror, is that there was incredible randomness to its, its violence. Um, that is unexplained. That can be explained, but at the same time, unexplainable, just because it only leads to more of the bloodshed. Um, now, what about the former nobility today? Um, in, in what ways are they trying to recover and reconstruct the memories of their families? Well, you know, much of this history was was taboo throughout the Soviet period, um, which is again why it hasn't really been studied. And um, I was fortunate uh, to come along at a time when the surviving members of these families in Russia are, are trying to reclaim their past. I think, I think the main thrust of this um, is, is to tell their stories, um, to, to publish the family letters, to publish diaries, photographs, um, to write histories of their family. Um, to just be able to speak about it openly, which only really began, you know, in the, in the late uh, 1980s, early 1990s. So there you have very much um, uh, an interest. I'd say it's chiefly focused on, on people telling the story of their particular family. Um, uh, f- for example, the Galitsyns, um, you know, a, a fairly large uh a group, although obviously greatly whittled down after what has happened, but they uh, regularly hold uh, conferences at one of the former estates and they publish uh, proceedings of these conferences. And I drew heavily on those. They're a wonderful source where you have all these people literally just digging up stuff out of their cupboards and drawers and out from under beds and things like that. All this stuff that was just kind of, you know, hidden away for decades. Um, So you get a lot of that. You know, I don't, I, the, the people I got to know in, in Moscow and in Petersburg and places, I mean, there's no attempt to like sort of, you know, put themselves forward as representatives for a new Russia or make some grand claims to property or, or anything like that. No, it's, it's very humble. It's a very modest desire for their, their history to be known and to be um, remembered, which I think obviously we all completely understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting story of how this is. I mean, when you especially wanted to ask if you know you go into Russian bookstores in Moscow, and the number of memoirs and letters, collections of letters that are being published, and it makes me wonder if this is somewhat tied to this kind of attempt to recover, not just on the part of the families, but I think the part of the nation in and of itself. I think it leads to a larger issue of recovery. Yeah, I think so. Definitely. You know, it's the, 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 those blank spots that Russians talk about that, um, you know, since the collapse of the Soviet system, people have tried to go back and, and fill in so much of the past that was, was written out. So I think, I think that's it. But I, you know, I know there's been uh, attempts to create, you know, new Ru- Russian noble associations and things like that. Um, I don't think they've amounted to much, um, to be honest, from what I can tell. And, I don't know how seriously they're they're taken, um, and uh, the degree to which that is is something that that people aspire to. There obviously are, I'm sure, some people who would like to to see that sort of um, thing happen. But the, the people that I got to know, no, it was very much just you know, this is this is our family, and we want people to know what happened to them, and and we want to be able to speak openly about about our past. Well, well, it's a, it's a fascinating book. It's it's very well written. I have to say, it's incredibly readable, which is always a joy. Um, so kudos on that. Thank you. Um, and so, just to to wrap up the interview, what are you up to now? Um, well, uh, you know, I'm actually trying to. Uh, you know, the book. I, my goal with this book is is to write something that will speak to you and other um, academics and scholars in the field 
while at the same time producing something that will, will speak to a broader audience. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I tell people that, uh, you know, one of the, one of the readers I always have in mind when I'm writing is my mother who likes, <laughs> she likes a good story. She likes a good book. So, and I really wanted to, to, to reach a broader audience. So actually what I've been doing now is, uh, uh, working with the press on a, a tour to various uh, cities in the States uh, to give book talks. Um, uh, the book will also be published by Macmillan in London. So I'm going to go over and do some things there. So it's amazing how much time that actually I takes. Can imagine. <laughs> uh, and, but I'm also, I'm, I'm working, um, working on the new book, um, which is going to be um, a study of, of uh, Rasputin and the, and the final years of, of Tsarist Russia. Oh, okay. Well, that should be also be a, of major interest to a, a broader audience since Rasputin it remains an enigma. At least if my students are any indication, <laughs> he remains an enigma. Well, it's interesting. You know, I know people uh, may roll their eyes when they hear, oh, God, another book on Rasputin. But um, it's interesting. There's, again, he's one of these, these figures that um, really couldn't be written about and studied during the Soviet pe- uh, period. So I'm finding amazing things uh, in archives in Russia that have never been touched before. Um, and also what I've been doing is is finding great things uh, in archives uh, outside of Russia as well. So, you know, I hope I have something new and, and fresh to say. And, and as you said, he remains an enigma um, uh, and is, uh, you know, will forever be fascinating. So uh, with luck, I'll have something new and, and interesting and fresh to, to talk about. Well, well, good luck with that and I uh, look forward to it. Thank you so much, John. All right. Thank you. Bye. I've been speaking with Douglas Smith about his book, Former People, The Final Days of the Russian Aristocracy. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Once again, I'm Sean Guillory, your host for New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies. If you're interested in hearing more interviews by the New Books Network, please go to newbooksnetwork.com. Until next time, goodbye. Того-то знать не весел дом, в котором мы живем, Надо блампочку повесить. Денег все не соберем, 